I know, you see, somehow the world's gonna change for me and be so wonderful. Just kidding. Hey guys, it's ya boy, Connor Renfro, and ya girl. This is when she says Hi, her name. Hi, it's me. Sorry. Hi, it's me, Violet. We're off to a great start. And we Shut are up. the co-hosts of the From the Margins podcast. And we're here to bring you a very exciting episode. And to start off, we're going to be talking about A Simple Favor, the 2018 American comedy thriller starring Anna Kendrick, Blake Lively, Henry Golding, and others. Violet, why don't you tell us why you like this movie so much? I love this movie because anybody who's a dedicated listener will not know, because I have never mentioned it on the podcast yet until now. I'm a huge Anna Kendrick fan. I think that she can do no wrong. I read her autobiography, and I think that honestly, she's as close to God as will ever come in our lifetime. Connor, back to you. I'm kidding. No. Um, I think... I am a big Anna Kendrick fan in a very serious sense. Like, I think she's a great actress, and I think she's been in a lot of things that I really respected. In fact, she's been in movies that I forgot she was in until later, and I always admire that she does well. And her... She just has a tone about her. Like, she has a very feel-good kind of tone to everything that she, like, uh, acts in. So, when I found out she was in this movie, I was like, well, I have to see it. Then Blake Lively is starring opposite her. Then I was like, I have to see it. I did not know anything about the movie or the book going into the film, but I have to say I was very, very pleased with the outcome. I think the story was, it had enough twists and turns to actually be engaging without ever feeling like you've solved everything. The comedic moments that were in there always felt like they were, they felt appropriate within the context of the story, and ultimately it was a good drama, and it takes. I'm a little bit of a snob when it comes to dramatic movies. It had a very similar feel to a Gone Girl style of movie in terms of tone and the way that it, like the cinematography was done. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it very much. I saw it. I've seen it about three times. Uh, the most recent time was when I was staying at a friend's house. Who um, she and I decided, hey, let's just get high and watch a simple favor, and so we did. And let me tell you, that movie. That was a great movie to watch high because it, I don't know how to describe it, but just the comedic scenes kick harder and even the dramatic scenes have this air of like mystique to them, even more so than watching it sober. For the most part, that's my impression of it. I know it's not a great real, it's not a great hot take debate, but we will get into that shortly. Connor, tell me, what are your thoughts on The Simple Favor? I'm so glad that you mentioned Gone Girl. Yes. Because... Both the book and the movie were pitched as similar to Gone Girl. Like, it was definitely part of that post-Gone Girl movie adaptation ride. The book, there was like written a... by Darcy... Hmm? I was going to say, there's like a string of like three or four books and movies that all came out right around the same time that were kind of Gone Girl clones. It was like A Girl on a Train. It was a simple favor. There's another oh my one god, that, that was also a comp title. Yeah. All right, so I know our listeners don't know this about me yet, but I actually got my Master's of Science in Publishing, and I used to have 
um, designs on working in the publishing industry. And I've created for myself, at least this like idea about thrillers. They're all about girls in places. You've got girls on trains, girls in windows, girls on planes, girls in rearview mirrors. In a rearview mirrors, you've got girls kicking like hornets' nests. You've got girls with dragon tattoos. You have girls that are gone altogether. Yeah, you've got girls that are gone. Girls on a hot tin roof. Anyway, <laughs> um, precisely. So, I've never read. Darcy Bell's A Simple Favor. It was published by Harper, which is a subs- which is an imprint of Harper Collins. Um, it's the flagship of Harper Collins. Anyway, the book was pitched or no, it was described by the Richmond Times Dispatch as Gone Girl Gone Nuclear, Gone Girl on Steroids, Amphetamines, and Cocaine. The movie when Paul Feig actually acquired it, um, preemptively he just or it was pitched to the studio as like a gone girl meets girl on the train but with like a domestic vibe you know right so for you those of you who don't know a simple favor is about a mommy blogger um whose best friend in her like son's school pta is like a successful businesswoman and she goes missing and the mommy blogger uses her like mommy blogging research skills to solve the murder or really we don't know if it's a murder it's a disappearance but of course you know with things like these murder is involved however i will say without spoiling it that there is a twist and it's a delicious twist and i will also comment without spoiling it that she has a twin who was actually the one who died and not her. <laughs> a beautiful way to not spoil you. <laughs> I'll bleep it. You'll bleep of it. I mean, this movie, I don't know what kind of critical reception it even received. Um, I think it was a fantastic film, personally. I know Violet was talking about her journey with discovering it. For me, I was living in New York at the time. I was mega depressed. I literally saw the poster in front of a movie theater. I saw Blake Lively. I saw Anna Kendrick back to back. And I was like, oh, I do want to see Blake Lively step on Anna Kendrick. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to see this movie. I didn't know it was a murder mystery. I didn't know it was a domestic thriller. I went in not knowing anything, and boy, was I taken for a ride. I thought it was going to be, like, some kind of sexy, lesbian, like, I don't even know. I don't know what I thought I thought, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I've seen it, I've only seen it twice. I watched it in theaters, and then I saw it again on Hulu. As a time of recording, it's probably still on Hulu, Um Definitely check this movie out. It's fantastic. I'm not a film critic by any means, but, you know, I went into the movie wanting to see Blake Lively being sexy. I wanted to see her, like, be a femdom on Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. 
and you know i got what i i got what i signed up for you know right that's all i have to say <laughs> i will also give the commentary that i am not a film critic but granted i am an aspiring one in the sense that I know enough about movies in order to think about them fully through, and even though I have trouble discussing them, mainly because I talk faster than I think, if I'm being honest. I recognize that this movie is by no means perfect, and I do actually know a little bit about the critical reception of this movie, and that movie, and that reception is that a lot of critics actually were very ambivalent toward it. They said it did some good things, they said it did some bad things. In terms of it being a movie worth watching, most were pretty on board they thought that it was at least a movie of some quality but they i'll point to the washington post for example after the movie came out they gave it a i believe two and a half to three and a half star their rating says two and a half out of four so i'm not sure what to make of that but yeah they said that ultimately it was good as a comedy but bad as a thriller and the new yorker was saying actually said that the murder the mystery comedy was made of plastic and frankly, I think that I can see where they're coming off from because it being a domestic thriller lends itself to being somewhat of a more a more formal affair of a movie. It's going to be a lot more concealed emotion and withdrawn acting. It's not going to be very bombastic. It's not going to be hyper emotional. It's a game of espionage and talking quietly. And for them to say that it's made of plastic, while I do see where they're coming from, I think it just moves into the entire mystique of the story that there's something going on beneath the surface of an otherwise loving family. And that rigidity from the actors and actresses is kind of appropriate for the emotional tone set by the movie itself. There's never, except for one or two moments I can think of, there's never a time in the movie that lends itself to being openly emotional and so of course the acting is going to be on the more plastic side because that's how they're supposed to act that's how anyone in this situation would act and so for them to say it's plastic i think it's frankly just a little bit of a superficial comment when the movie itself is qualifying for that so yeah that's my take well i think you bring up some valid points but I'm i have wrong. a lot of no, I actually agree with you on everything. Gotcha. What I have to say is that um, as far as domestic thrillers in book in the book space, I generally do not like them. I always enjoy reading them, but I tend to feel that the genre is more about the journey, not the destination. I kind of hinted to this when I was giving my plot synopsis, but not really, mm-hmm. that um, you always know the girl is dead. Um, Gone Girl is the first movie I saw that finally subverted that expectation. The girl is not dead, and she is actually the antagonist driving the plot. I found that refreshing. So are we just, girl are on... we just boiling it now? Hmm? Yeah, we're just going to spoil it. Like, I don't care All right, anymore. pop up the spoiler alert at the beginning of this video like we did for Frozen 2. Oh, warning. The following podcast has spoilers for just A Simple Favor, a simple Gone favor. Girl, and Girl on the Train. Viewer discretion is advised. Oh, yeah, we are spoiling the other three by proxy. Whoops. I mean, 
the other two are like dead and gone. A simple favor. Girl in the train wasn't. Girl in the train is dead and gone. Like, okay, here's my hot take. The book sucked. The movie sucks more. I hate those titles. I hate those properties. I'm going to tell you why. Tell me why. Girl on the Sing Train. I, I read that book when it first came out. I was like ahead of the like fanfare. It was not great. Okay. Paula Hawkins. Bless you. Thank you for writing a book. Thank you for publishing it. Thank you for giving people money and work. But... I hated your book, all right? It was all about the journey. The destination was flat AF. Like, here's my complaint. We knew that the girl, the missing woman, was dead, okay? Like, and that's on me. Okay, Paula Hawkins, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be so hostile in the beginning. Please forgive me. It's all on me. I don't want people to die. I can't even listen to true crime podcasts because they're too upsetting. Like, I never want people to die. And I hate that I get sucked into these books where I'm hoping against all hope that maybe the woman is still alive and she's always dead. She is always dead. Gone Girl subverted my expectations. A Simple Favor subverted my expectations. That's my good note for those two. But a girl, the girl on the train, the woman on the train. No, it is the girl on the train. Right, it is the girl. She is, she is dead. She is the most interesting character in the story, and yet every single interesting thing about her is a dead end red herring. And the reason she's dead is because of some boring stuff that has to do with the main character's ex husband. And I'm like, what a letdown. I mean, maybe if I actually cared about their domestic situation and this drama, that would be like a thing. But really, I'm like, I don't even remember the character's name. I don't either. Um, she had two names in the book because the main character, the drunk lady, was her name. Maybe I should look it up. For the life of me. Rachel? I, one of their names is Rachel. It may have been the, it looking... may have been the protagonist. Yep, it's Rachel. Yeah, Rachel. Because every time I read a book, uh, the main Rachel character Watson, is based who... off of one of my exes. Um, right. So, yeah, Rachel Watson. And then Anna is... Oh, no. Anna is Tom's wife. And then who's the other girl? Who's the missing girl? The missing girl was a mistress. The missing girl is named Megan Hipwell. Yes. But... Rachel calls her Jess because Rachel has been living vicariously through this woman. Mm -hmm. And um, so Megan is the most interesting character in this story. She has this amazing backstory. You really see the like trajectory of her life. She's like, she comes from tragedy. She's working on herself. And when it finally seems like she's going to be okay, she's actually murdered by some rando. And it's like, well, that's not interesting. I mean, you know, good job, Paula, for, like, building suspense. But, like, me as a sensitive soft boy, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. So I'm hostile. I'm sorry. I, I need to, like, take seven steps back. 
forgive me, Paula Hopkins. I didn't mean to like do that to you, but this is a larger problem I have with these thrillers that kind of like, they like tease you with like, Oh, is the missing woman alive? And she's not, she's always dead, which is why I appreciated gone girl. And it's why I appreciate a simple favor because in this long line of the woman is dead and I don't know why you bother getting your hopes up. I don't know why you allowed the author to like manipulate your emotions for suspense. At least in these two stories, the woman is still alive and she is actively contributing to the like antagonism of the plot. Connor, and that's why I like the simple you favor. Happy to know? I do agree that it really did subvert the expectation of the idea that the girl is always going to be dead and really this entire investigation is just telling us what we already know and finding out why she's dead. But would it help you to know that uh, Girl on the Train was the People's Choice Award winner in 2017 for Best Thriller or Favorite Thriller? I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I think I was so disappointed in the ending that I like forgot how invested I was while reading it. Like I devoured it in one sitting. Like really, I don't want to, I do not want to take that away from Paula Hawkins. Like I ate that book up, but I was so disappointed in the ending. And I continue to be so disappointed in all of these domestic thriller books endings that it just kind of blended into the rest for me after I finished reading it. And the movie was terrible. Can we just explain? Can we just admit that? The girl in the on the train movie. The move. Did you ever see it, Violet? The movie. Oh, of course I did. That's the only reason I'm able to comment on it as much as I am. Um, the girl on the train movie. It kind of. I'll put it this way. The reason it won People's Choice Award for Best Thriller for 2017 is because it was going up against a lot of nothing competition. For example, if I told you the movie Nerve, do you remember the movie Nerve without seeing the movie poster? That's the one that's like based on like a truth or dare game and it's all shot on iPhone or something? Essentially. No, no, no. It wasn't shot on iPhone, but Nerve is kind of like a truth or dare game. Yeah, there's like a social media Emma game. Emma Roberts. Goddamn, you are better at movies than I am. And yes, you're right. It is Emma Roberts. Um, yeah, I remember I was actually interested in the trailer. I like trash movies. I'm sorry. I don't like trash movies. I can't watch them. Um, at least I can only watch them if I go into them knowing they're trash and if I'm like mentally prepped for a breakdown session. But <laughs> as far as thrillers go, A Simple Favor does hit the, hit things well by actually divulging that the Blake Lively character is actually alive the whole time, despite them ostensibly finding her body in a lake. I think that they really did, not only did they subvert the expectation of her being dead, they subverted it pretty hard in a time when we were just expecting more of the same. So, with that in mind, I do want to come back to it, but, Connor, what is the book that you let me borrow? It was a thriller, it was not a domestic thriller, but it was about... I know what you're talking about. What is the name of that book? 
Oh, I'm so glad you because asked. Because I... That is called... I read... I'm think. I read that entire book in less than 24 hours. And let me tell you, I was horribly disappointed because not only did I call the ending, I, I just... There never felt like there were any stakes to the... You know, what is the name of it before we get into it? Oh, I'm really sad that you didn't like it because I loved then it. Then I'm but ready the, for debate. Okay. Well, the book is called I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reid. Yes. And I think it's actually going to be made into a Netflix movie. I know they bought the rights to it. Soon. I don't know if they've ever done anything with it, now. but I know they own the rights. Um, so start talking about why you didn't like it. Okay. I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reid. It is... I will... G- Maybe it's just coming from a deep point of cynicism within me, but are we going into spoiler territory with this one? I don't know how to not spoiler go into spoiler warning. Territory. I'm spoiler ha- warning for I'm thinking of ending things by Ian Reed, both the novel and possibly the film, if it That's does true. not deviate oh, God, yeah. drastically from the novel. I really hope it does deviate drastically from the novel, but I'll put it this way. Maybe it's I'm a deeply cynical person. I don't know. But I, from at least halfway through this book, knew what the ending was going to be. And it frustrated me because I saw how... Now, I it reminded... It's, maybe it's because it's close to my own writing style, but I will sit there and I will sort of tease. If I do have a big twist that's coming up, I will sit there and tease as much as possible to, like, blue ball the audience into staying with me. But... The movie, because I knew what the twist was going to be and figured it out too soon in the book, I may have just ruined it for myself. Because when you figure out the twist, and I'll tell you the twist now, get ready, last chance to click off, the protagonist, the narrator, the woman who is unnamed throughout the entire book, her and her boyfriend Jake, they're the same people, essentially. They... The protagonist is really just, is she a projection of what Jake is feeling? Is she like an alternate personality or is she just sort of like a manifestation? Are you asking me? I mean, if you have any thoughts on it. I want you to say as much as you can before I come in with my interpretation. All right. Now, okay, in that case, she is either a manifestation or an alternate personality or something in relation to her boyfriend, Jake, who is portrayed as a reserved and strange person that she fell in love with at a pub trivia night which became a big point of the story for some reason um but he takes her to meet his parents and there was so much about the scene where they visit his parents that i really just felt was unresolved because all i remember is i remember reading the part where she goes down into the basement and sees these paintings and she like gets i think she feels like I think she got trapped in the basement at one point, and all I remember is it being resolved with a big nothing. Oh, never mind. There's not even actual conflict here. Uh, as they as they leave the farmhouse I'm from his parents' house, I told you when I think too fast, I don't know how to speak. But after they leave, I just remember the scene of where they go to the Dairy Queen, and the people behind the counter start giggling whenever... 
uh, he goes in, and it's because the people working at Dairy Queen are local high school students, and they mentioned that I think he works at the high school I think they mentioned. Either way, they end up going to the local high school, and I thought, you know what, that's it. That's all the confirmation I needed. Now it's 100% decided, because they would only be giggling at this person in the context of this book if they knew who he was. It turns out the protagonist is like a janitor at the local high school and he's having a mental breakdown of some sort. I'm going to sound like such a dumbass whenever you come in and know infinitely more about it, Connor, but all I can really say is the past, the very last chapter where it's built up as this giant psychological climax in which you don't know if the girl's real or if Jake is real or if there's another person in the school and they're being hunted and she's afraid she's going to be killed. She thinks Jake is gone. The entire buildup of that is actually amounts to nothing when you find out it's ultimately the same person and it's ultimately Jake who ends up committing suicide in a janitor's closet, I think, or at least his janitor office. But I just, I left that book feeling really frustrated because I'm like, man, this had all the trappings in a good way. This had all the makings of a great psychological thriller, but I feel like it whiffed at the end. Even if I could suspend, Ian Reed is a great writer. The way he writes is clear, it is very fluid, it engages me, and he had me perfectly hooked to throw a curveball at the last second and be like, yeah, I bet you thought something very mysterious was happening. Nope. Turns out the boyfriend's just a murderer, or literally anything else, but he didn't. And I just... it. I also have a problem with any book and where mental illness is the big source of conflict like I have a large distaste for mental illness being the central conflict of a story and it has to be done very very precisely and I think this kind of like indulged the idea of mental illness as a conflict now the one thing I did just learn in the time that I was talking about this though is that they really, it was a finalist for the 2016 Shirley Jackson Award, which congratulations, but Netflix is releasing a full film adaptation, and not only that, guess who is set to play, um, guess who is set to, like, be a, I don't know if she's the protagonist, or if she's, like, the mom, or what she's going to play. Basically, they got Tony Collette to be in the movie. I did see Tony Collette in the and, cast, and I think she's probably going to play his mom. Probably. I would Jake's mom. Right. And honestly, Tony Collette is a powerhouse of an actress and she is worth Tony Collette is the best actress of our time. She is worth her weight in gold in terms of acting. Again, she's worth her weight in gold in terms of acting qual like she and Lupita Nyong'o like can fucking knock a house down off of its foundations with their acting. Oh yeah. But that's my take on I'm thinking of ending things. I'd love to hear yours, Connor. Okay. How much do you think you would have enjoyed the book if you did not see the twist coming? It's hard to say for certain, but I genuinely think at least another 10%, possibly 20 Because I did not see the twist coming. Like, per, like, I had no idea what was going on. And... The entire last third of the book that takes place in the high school, I didn't know what was going on. All I knew is that the narrator, whoever they were, 
felt like they were being stalked by some other entity. And I was in so much suspense that I literally felt like, you know, I tweeted this. I tweeted that um, I was so scared that my entire nervous system was affected or rearranged or whatever I said. And I guess the author was like name searching or like searching the title of his book or something because he found it and he retweeted me and he was like, thanks, mate. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm starstruck. Thank you, Ian Reid, for noticing me. <laughs> um, it was it's like to this day, my second best performing tweet of all time, because the author retweeted it and all of his friends, all of his fans, you know, were like in on that action. My top tweet of all time right. was when Dana Schwartz, um, who is a writer and podcaster herself, she recently released a book, The White... Oh my God, what is it called? It's like The White Man's Guide to the Western Canon. Uh-huh. I'm looking it up. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Is that the book where it looks like you're the one that it's on the cover? Yeah, The White Man's Guide to White Male Writers of the Western Canon. And um, it's based on her, like, fake Twitter accounts, um, guy in your MFA. And, like, for years, like, since 2014, I've, like, said that this Twitter account is based on me. And then in 2019, she releases this book and she, like, does a teaser of the cover. And I'm like, oh, my God the the cover art is of me so i tweet the cover next to a picture of me and i tag her in it and i'm like how dare you and your publisher you know use this likeness of me without my consent and she retweets it and suddenly i blow up and people that I know from my publishing program who didn't necessarily follow me at the time, see it and they start following me and they're tweeting me. And they're like, Connor, Oh my God. And I'm like, yeah, I know I'm famous. And Dana Schwartz, this is a call out. You promised me a galley of your book. I gave you my address. We've DM'd each other. I still don't have it. Okay. I bought your book. Ooh. I had to buy a copy of your book. Because you did not deliver on your promise to send me a galley. This is a call out. Also, I really love your podcast, Ooh. Noble T your Come Noble Blood. <laughs> Noble Blood, your podcast is really good. I introduced my parents to it whenever we're driving to rural Georgia. My parents are fans. Like you've you've affected my life more than you know. Where's my free copy of your galley? <laughs> I feel bad because the two most the two starstruck tweets i've ever done were to the band transviolet <laughs> and to the youtubers defs and jotty both of which favorited a tweet that i did and that's about my most starstruck i've ever i've also had twitter for like 500 percent longer than you have so i've only had it since 2018 i think oh my god it's been like a year and oh a half. even more like i've been on twitter since 2011 so Ooh. so like you got yours in 2019? 18. So I've had mine. And like late 2018. Oh, late 2018. So yeah, I've had mine for like eight years longer than you have. So I've like built a following. 
so you shouldn't feel guilty. But um, gotcha. Yeah. So Connor, I want to hear more about your takeaway from I'm thinking of ending things. You said that it like hit you correctly because you didn't see it coming, but I want to you to tell more about what I was missing by having seen it coming. I mean, I think, and this isn't by no means your fault. I mean, you're probably not the intended audience, right? Maybe you are. I don't know. But um, by not knowing what's going on, you're just left with like randomness, right? You're just being hit with these sentences and suddenly they stop making any sense. And you're like clinging to like whatever like you thought you knew. So I still think that I'm this girl who desperately wants to leave a relationship and doesn't know how. A situation I'm intimately familiar with, by the way. <laughs> um, and it's like, you're in this school, you don't know what happened to your boyfriend. Um, there's this creature like crawling like a centipede. Um, it's terrifying. I was terrified. Um, and then finally by the end, it's spelled out for me and I'm like, oh, I get it now. And I'm just like, it wasn't even like, I wasn't even like hit with realization. It was more like, oh my God, I was so scared. And suddenly I'm like, I'm left with this like ending. And I'm like, oh, so Jake was the narrator all along. This nameless female narrator was like a part of him. Like you said, she was like, um, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if it's, and like you said, it's always problematic when you use mental illness as a driving factor undelicately. So I'm not sure if he had like schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder, or he just dissociated into this girl narrator to narrate his life for him because his own existence was so unpleasant and so untenable. And she was his last reason to live and her wanting to break up with him was actually him wanting to end his own life because his parents are actually dead. He has a like, job as a janitor everybody hates him his self-esteem is so low that the girlfriend that he invented in his own mind hates him and thinks he's ugly and weird looking so i don't know but um i also let my mom borrow the book and When she finished reading it, she texted me and I asked her, are you scared? And she says, no, it's not scary. It's sad. It's so sad. And I'm like, wild how you read it, my mom read it, Zach read it, I've read it, and all four of us had very different takeaways from it. I don't remember what Zach said about it, 
But um, I don't remember what he said about it either. I would frankly love to know because he's got some interesting. Was he part this. of the brigade oh. that like convinced but you I to mean, read it? Or did you read it before him? I mean, I mean, I'll cut this out later, but you know, like he's he's got that men's rights activist perspective. And I really have a problem with that. And I just don't want to condone that. And I feel like that's really bleeding into his interpretation of media recently. So, um, but so for those of you who don't know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He is not a men's rights activist. He hates men. I was actually <laughs> surprised. I'm like, Zach of all people, Connor. I think he's like the most identity politics driven would actually take the wrong side because he thinks he's serving marginalized I people. Know. Love you, Zach. You know than that. That's I, I can self crit um, to Zach. It's okay. I just realized whenever you mentioned everybody coming th- to the book from a different perspective, I just realized that there's something I kind of was doing without realizing it. And that is I'm kind of being an asshole. And by being an asshole, I mean I expect him as an author to appeal to me as a reader, like, the entire time. And while I wasn't satisfied with the book's ending, if I look at it not from my own... If I look at it from the sense of, did I have a good time reading it, the answer is not as much as I thought I would. But if I look at it from a character study or, like, just purely a literature review... I think it is more sad than it is scary personally because knowing what the conflict was and seeing it all play out in real time while reading, it's tragic because this guy is quite literally walking you through the entirety of why he hates himself in a very poetic way if you know that's what's coming. If you don't, then I understand why it's so scary because it's just a, it's just a jumble of figures and symbols that just seem to have no relevance to each other. Um, But I will say that... Uh, there is a review by Hannah Petard of the New York Times that I think actually does hit a lot of my thoughts as far as the ending goes. She says that the big reveal at the end hastily disposes of unexplained and unnecessary red herrings and the revelation is at once too tidy and too convenient to be satisfying. I think the fact Mm. that there were so many red herrings thrown in on top of it already being a story about mental illness and the coping with it if it's a story about mental illness, the red herring is just make it that much more frustrating as a reader. But if it's a story about one person navigating their own grief and sense of self-hatred before ultimately committing suicide, then the red herrings can be symbol- symbolic of their own confusion about their decisions and what their life is going to be like from now on if they have a life at all. So, really, there's no right answer. I've... Since having this conversation, I've dropped my tone a little bit about the book. I think it has some merit to it, and it's definitely worth the award consideration it got. But just purely as a reader who's got other things to do in their day, it wasn't it wasn't my favorite. Two things. Yes. One, um, your self-criticism about... What were your words? Did you call yourself an asshole? Yeah, I did say I was an asshole. I said I was coming from an asshole stance, kind of. Okay, I mean, I can sympathize because early in this episode, I was like dragging Paula Hawkins for not writing a story to my taste, right? right? And I'm like, you know, in retrospect, maybe as the one person who's loudly dissenting, I'm not right. Like maybe she wrote a perfectly valid thriller and my sensitive ass 
who didn't want Megan to be dead, you know, I was imposing my own will on her story and she's perfectly fine on her own. Secondly, these red herrings, I didn't see them as red herrings because from a psychoanalytic point of view, after finishing the book and still being confused, I went straight to the message boards and um, I was reading about, especially the scene when you talked about being trapped in the basement, it was actually conjuring a lot of and I didn't know it at the time, but now I'm well-versed in it. It was, you know, a lot of psychoanalytic talk about like Freud and Jung and the unconscious. And like, when you go into a cellar, when you go underground, you're actually delving into the unconscious. The idea that there was a trap door, but all of the scratch marks were on the underside means there's something you're repressing. And the painting that the that the our narrator found in the cellar is like an attempt at self-reporting at self-representation it's the character it's like a meta narrative about creating the world or viewing the world one way when truly the world does okay Philosophically speaking, there's no such thing as objective truth. And yet, there is a level of reality that everybody is experiencing subjectively. And the narrator of this story is not experiencing that level of reality because of their mental illness, be it dissociative identity disorder or... Um, some kind of paranoid delusional something I don't even I don't even want to diagnose the narrator because I have intimate experience with people with dissociative identity disorder and that's not how I've seen them navigate the world it's more of like a fugue state perhaps where he became somewhat of a few the girlfriend archetype and was living through her meeting his parents who we now know to have been dead throughout the book anyway like it's confusing and it doesn't make sense and he's living a fantasy he's dissociated out of the shared conscious real existence that the rest of us are all inhabiting to be sure two things (laughs) my turn for two things okay one well three things but two of them are quick number one if we want to have a whether or not there's an objective reality philosophical debate i'm prepared for that two uh i love how we started this podcast off talking about a simple favor and completely moved it to a book review but i am here for it i am here for it and i'm loving it three let's get real fucking honest for a second because there is a big elephant in my mental room that i'm not addressing that for the sake of being efficient with my analyses and my biases i need to address and that is i am a transgender woman I am a person who was not born cisgendered female and now identifies as female. 
the entire book dealing with this person who is simultaneously identifying for the sake of the book as being a female narrator while also having this immense self-loathing that is coming up from within every inch of the writing and then also having mental illness. That's a big old cycle of things that I empathized with when I read this and it just made me feel awful about myself because I could, by no means, am I saying that I could empathize with what this person was going through directly in any means because if we read this as a gender critical thing and this person being if we read it as though this was not a mental illness and this was somebody coming to terms with their transgender identity then which is a valid reading i would be wildly uncomfortable with the similarities of like with the themes of self-loathing and the idea of i hate myself as i am therefore i'm going to invent where I'm going to escape into this alternate reality person of who I can be or who I am because that's who I actually am. I'm not saying that transgenderism is escapism by any means whatsoever, but the book was a mental escape for Jake. The narrator literally did not exist as a separate person. So I guess what I'm trying to say is part of my dislike of it, in addition to knowing what was happening, I think somebody's knocking on my door. One second. <laughs> They're not knocking on my door. They're knocking on somebody else's outside. It's true. Ooh, that was anyway, That's they're knocking scary, on my door. especially they're given what we're talking about right because now. Because I um, have the window open because it gets really hot when we do these recordings. But so... When I read the book as a gender study, or like if I read it in a personal sense where I'm inflicting, I use the word inflicting purposely myself upon the book, then it becomes a much different analysis that I am not comfortable with because it's such a tragic recounting of a lot of the safe self-hatred that I felt toward myself when I had to live closeted as a man exclusively, and that was just my existence and I could never escape it. Um... Except where instead of emancipating myself through suicide, thank God I didn't, um, this person emancipated themselves through, well, suicide. I chose to do something different. I chose to actually be who I am, where this person did not. That's if I read it as though he isn't a transgender, when we don't know that to be a fact by any means. But, yep, so that was a weird take, and I just felt like I could not give a fully versed review if I didn't at least address the fact that my gender identity did play some role in my reading of this book. I appreciate you sharing your own personal, what you're bringing to it. And I do know as a student of literary criticism that author's intent doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, death of the yeah, author. Authors. However... I do think I, you know, Ian Reed was not bringing like a transgender lens. To no, this I don't think so text. at all. But when I read it in that way, it, it hit too close to home is the problem. Not that it was purposeful. Right. And reader, reader response is a valid school of criticism. And it, you know, it does flavor the text. It does bring interesting new readings to texts yours is valid yours is quite interesting really i'm interested to learn more about it 
at another point, it kind of sounds like you're giving him too much credit. Like, I was willing to agree with you that he was exploiting mental illness as a cheap gimmick, but to include the transgender thing, the gender discussion, I think is one, not his intention, and two, if it was, I think he did it so badly that even I wouldn't have gotten there. Not saying that's what he was doing or what you said he no. was doing anyway. Right. I apologize. I Obviously, I don't think I made it clear. I don't in any way whatsoever think that that was a purposeful interpretation that he put in the book. I think it was more so that my vehemence in not liking the book was also modified by reading it in that way exclusively of my own accord and seeing that symbolism and that connection there that was not intended and having a negative reaction to it that makes me dislike the book because it reminded me of a lot of the negative stuff that I had to deal with in a different way and therefore it colored my interpretation and my ultimate review of the book to a degree that it may deserve higher reviews than I was giving it. But at the same time, reader response is like the second school of criticism, like literary criticism I learned in undergrad. So it's still a very valid interpretation mm -hmm. and reading. And I think it is valuable to the discussion, right? I don't think you've brought anything that's useless. I think what you're bringing is valuable. And, you know, outside of like politically correct cancel culture, whatever, Mm -hmm. These voices should be listened to and we should always be thinking like, oh, what an interesting lens to bring to this discussion. Like you've definitely enhanced my understanding of the original text. Will it change my opinion? No. But will it enrich my understanding of its impact in the culture? certainly right so as we're sitting here talking about this and we're having a wonderful discussion on this book about the pros and cons of it and the interpretations of it and we had a wonderful discussion about a lot of the merits of a simple favor i'm reminded of the fact that people who are not familiar with the from the margins podcast who might actually be following along sequentially in order will be like wait a minute aren't these the same two people that talked about pegging in the last episode <laughs> stop it was two episodes ago. You're right. It was two episodes ago. But yes. So I just want to show that we're good at both. Get you a girl who can do both. We are the girl who can do both. Sweatpants and little back We dress. are the girl who is Jake, who is also not Jake. I'm Jake. <laughs> Violet is Jake my girlfriend. I invented Violet to express all of my self-loathing. I'm unnamed protagonist. And I'm going to stab myself in the neck with a clothes hanger in a high school locker where I went to high school. And I'm also Which, the janitor. Which, let me just say, that is of... an inefficient way of killing yourself on top of everything else. Yeah, the interstitions with, like, the cops. Connor, if we did back up for a second and have a philosoph If we did back up for a second and have a philosophical discussion about whether or not reality actually exists, I would not be surprised if I was just a big figment of your imagination that you invented in order to actually keep yourself sane and have somebody to talk to. You think you're the figment of my imagination? I mean, I do literally not exist... <laughs> Are you telling me you don't yeah, exist? Yeah, I literally don't exist until you call or contact me. Like, I don't have an objective reality. I mean... I mean, I'm just telling you that I just 
suddenly come into consciousness whenever you contact me, and then whenever we're done talking, I just sort of disappear. I literally hated the school of philosophy because they were all just a bunch of stoners who told me shit like, everything is fake, nothing is real. And now that I finally have studied philosophy for myself, and I have an appreciation for it, I do not appreciate you coming in and telling me that I invented you and that actually all of these podcasts are me just talking to myself and also being quiet for 30 like seconds at a time waiting for like no no all i'm saying is that after you finished editing the podcast and putting them up on youtube you just thought this would be better with a co-host so you invented me and, and all of my memories from winthrop like your your first episode didn't do very good yeah like it was just you and zach i mean i was there in spirit but like I wait i'm recording exist. with zach no oh no you mean you mean my memories that went through exactly like call zach right now well he might be in bed but call zach right now and ask him if Violet ever existed. It is like after midnight Eastern Standard Time. He's asleep. He works early morning. Because he's a big adult baby, which means he goes to bed early like a responsible man. <laughs> he is the love of my life, and I will not hear the slander, even if you are fake. Even if this episode gets published and it's just me talking to myself and nobody can hear your side well, see, of it. I've been quiet about it because frankly, I'm afraid of what's going to happen if you truly embrace the fact that I don't exist outside of you. I think it'll not do very good for your mental health and I think you're going to go back to your therapist who I was about to name drop them and it'll be a really weird discussion. Do not name drop my psychoanalyst. I did not. I almost did. I almost, yeah, I almost Please did. Don't. But I caught myself. We should probably give her a fake name so that we can, like, what if we casually her... name her. But then I'll accidentally call her that in the session. And then she'll be like, excuse me? I'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. I That's that's the fake name I use for you when I talk about you on my podcast. And she'll be like, you talk about me on your podcast? And I'll be like, oh. I mean, I talk to myself about I... you, but yeah. Anyway, we're almost at the hour mark. Are we good to close out? I think we're good. I think I said everything I wanted to about I'm thinking of ending things and also about... Oh, the only thing I can think about also is, Connor, the literal title of the book is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is a double entendre for ending a relationship and ending your life. I know. I love it. That was Sorry, my first but I was going clue. through a major breakup at the time, and I love it. <laughs> that was your first warning. Yeah. I mean... I, I literally entered the book having both interpretations and also thinking like, I too am going through a major breakup, so I am the target audience. That's fair. That oh. was really deep and personal for this podcast. I mean, it was deep and personal, but I got deep and personal too, which I mean, about as pers I got as personal as you allowed me to be, because I mean... I can only use the will that I'm given. Shut up. You are not a figment of my imagination. Yes, I am. I don't have All of my exist. friends in New York have met you and we've talked about you since. Connor. And they are not they are not kind enough to like indulge me in my delusions. Connor, your friends love you. They just want what's best for you and they know this is good for you. I'm signing out. Okay, bye. Bye.